Welcome to the Living in Alignment podcast. My name is Amy Landry. Through a collage of conversations, here we distill mindful living and timeless wisdom within a modern, everyday context. Thank you for being here. Kaya Mindelin is a trusted teacher guiding many of today's yoga teachers and longtime practitioners. Mature seekers resonate with her authentic approach that synthesizes the mystical and practical. With over 20 years teaching experience and the blessing of her gurus as a steward of the Vedic tradition, Kaya expertly weaves yogic practice, storytelling, Sanskrit recitation, Vedanta, Shaktism, Vedic astrology, and Ayurveda in her rich programs. Her supreme release yoga works gently and deeply with the subtle spine as a sacred pilgrimage site. While many are first drawn to her fierce stewardship and commitment to breaking yoga land myths on social media, they find their yoga home in her inclusive and deep approach that prioritizes a loving teacher-student relationship in which anything can be fodder for spiritual growth. Kaya lives in the United States with her husband, a masterful Vedic astrologer, and their two children. Kaya, it's such a treat and an honor to have you as a guest on the podcast, and therefore your incredible wealth of wisdom that you bring to our community. So welcome. Thank you, Amy. Happy to be with you. So as we usually do on the podcast, I'd love to invite the listener into a little bit of your personal story, as much as you're willing to share, uh, and perhaps Selfishly, I always appreciate receiving insight into the journey of someone who lives a rich life that's steeped in tradition. So would you please share with us a little about yourself and your life story thus far? Sure. So um, I was born into a family of artists and teachers. My mother is a musician and a music teacher, and my father was um, also a musician. He played percussion in orchestra and he also was a software engineer and an entrepreneur. So he was a real pattern geek, I would say, uh, reflecting back on it. And so I was raised in a household with the arts being really upheld as something of value and the intellect as being held as something valuable. Um, I was the oldest sibling. I am the oldest sibling of three. And my father passed away suddenly uh, when I was a child. And that, as you can imagine, created a big shift um, in the course of my life, or we might even say just sort of exaggerated certain tendencies. So even before that, I had a very inquiring tendency and caregiving tendency Um some of my students have heard me tell the story that when I was five years old, I brought my younger brother to show and tell at school who was a newborn baby. And I taught the class how to change a diaper. So from very young, I loved tending to others, taking care of others. I learned how to cook starting when I was about six years old. Um, and I was also constantly internally asking big questions about the nature of existence. Why do people suffer? Why are we, why do we get sad? Is it possible to feel happy all of the time? These questions were sort of constantly playing out in my mind um, from very young. And when my father died, when I was 10 years old, that exaggerated the 
big question asking. And it also exaggerated the caregiving because I was thrust into a position of tending to my younger siblings, tending to my mother um, as she was grieving. Um, And so all of that just continued to grow as I grew. Um, When I was in my teen years, I started having some reflecting back some very esoteric experiences um, in between the waking and sleeping states. And that continued, you know, through my college years and in my dream realm. And I was pursuing um, going in the direction of a PhD that was in sort of anthropology and sociology and storytelling of people from different various cultures across the globe. But at the same time that I was pursuing that, I found the Vedic tradition. I ended up in philosophy courses with a philosophy professor on the outside, but turned out to be a devotee with a guru who was initiated into meditative practices. (laughs) And so I learned meditation from him and I was studying Shastra. I was studying scripture with him when I was about 20, 21 years old. So that completely changed the course of my life as I had planned it. So I I abandoned a PhD program and I moved across the country in the US to an area where I expected to find more things like yoga and um, had been an athlete in my youth and a dancer. And so when I found out that there was this thing called asana that was connected to the scriptural study I had been doing, that was very compelling. And so from there, I just dove full time into yogic study. I met my husband uh, kind of at that juncture point as well when I was shifting into full-time study of yoga. And he was a meditator and a yogic seeker as well. And we were about 23 years old at the time. And so we didn't have a lot of responsibilities. We didn't really care about money. We shared one room together and slept on the floor. And we spent all of our time and resources and money just going deep into yogic study. And so from there, I just spent about 12 years in full-time study uh, with my gurus and mentors and teachers in what I call the full spectrum of the Vedic tradition from yoga, yoga therapy, Ayurveda, uh, Vedic astrology or Jyotisha, Vastu or Vedic architecture, Sanskrit, Shastra, all of those things. And my husband as well. And he ended up deepening with Jyotisha, Vedic astrology, and I ended up deepening in some other realms. And then of course we had children (laughs) and, um, you know, I was starting to teach and teaching more and more, um, starting from about 20 years ago, we had a yoga therapy studio, uh, for a number of years. And now we live in a very small village town by the sea, um, in the Pacific Northwest. And we, are doing most things virtually these days because we live sort of in the middle of nowhere. And that allows us to work with people all over the world, sharing what our gurus and teachers gave us so generously. So that's a little bit of the story. That's incredible. It's so evident that you were meant to be doing what you're doing. Like the trajectory of your life is just absolutely destined to to be here which is really inspiring uh and if you don't mind i'd love to turn our conversation now to uh your recent instagram post that you put out uh about well in general the yoga tradition but more specifically guardianship and the idea of 
let's say gatekeeping, which can often get a, a bit of a bad rap that that term specifically. Yeah. Uh, and I'd love to know, you know, well, let's expand upon that a little, if you don't mind, and and let's talk about perhaps how this pertains to protecting the practices of yoga and and in addition to protecting the practitioners of yoga as well. Yes, yes. So <clears throat> I was contemplating Ganapati or Ganesha in preparation for teaching about Ganesha as we have um, around September every year, this Ganesha festival of 10 days. And I give teachings and stories at that time. And I was contemplating the meaning of Ganapati. And I was thinking Ganapati gatekeeper guardian and the story of him protecting the doorway of his mother and how we pray to Ganapati at the beginning of everything. And I realized that the, the term gatekeeping that we have in English is very relevant to the principle of Ganapati, but that gatekeeping has a very negative connotation. And what does that mean for those of us that are participating in learning or stewarding this tradition that essentially puts the gatekeeper at the forefront Really, mm. Ganesha is the one form of the divine that everyone recognizes, you know, most readily. And he's the one that we invoke um, at the beginning of everything. So I sat with it for a day and I thought, can I talk about gatekeeping without triggering a lot of people into a negative reaction? And mm. what would that look like? And then I just couldn't stop myself. And so I just sat down and I just in the moment poured out this contemplation about Ganesha as the one who um, protects the doorway. And as I reflected on it, I realized that really, as far as I understand it, I think every indigenous tradition has a principle of a guardian of practices and knowledge and wisdom. And that this is something that we want to sort of reinstate or stabilizes something that's really valuable and um, meaningful. So I'm happy to take this in a lot of different directions. I was thinking it might be helpful to sort of talk about, well, why is Ganesha the protector of doorways or the protector of knowledge? And, and what does that mean? Or maybe why do we need someone to do that? Why do we need to protect why do we need a gatekeeper? Maybe mm. that would be a place to start. Yes, because I think, as you mentioned in the post, there's this sense, particularly in the Western world, of like, I want what I want and I will have it when I want it, even within the realm right. of study and, and these traditions. Right. And so, exactly, we want access and we want to fulfill our desires. That's the human trip. We have a desire and we want to fulfill it. And in the modern world and in the Western world and in non-Indigenous culture, we're very used to getting what we want when we want it and blaming the world or the system when we don't. And that isn't the way that the Vedic tradition, the yoga tradition or Indigenous traditions work. So the way that knowledge works in yoga is it's resting on the principle of adhikar, to use Sanskrit. Adhikar means to be well-prepared or available for something. It's a recognition that the teachings and the practices are precious 
because your life is precious. And it's a recognition that the timeline matters. You want to be ready. So I think I could give a metaphor here. You know, you have young children. I have young children. And there's different philosophies around this, but I know you are into Ayurveda and many of your listeners are. So in Ayurveda, we understand that you don't just say, well, the child is such and such an age, give them food. Hmm. We look at certain guiding principles to recognize when that individual child has a certain readiness of the digestive system, of the nervous system, based on their constitution and certain signs and signals that we use as a metric to determine their readiness for that nourishment. And so we see, are they sitting up on their own? We see, you know, how, how hungry are they? What is their relationship to when they see us eating? We might get certain assessments done by a chiropractor or an acupuncturist, an Ayurvedic practitioner to see what's the state of their digestive tract, what's happening with their teeth. Have they cut their first tooth yet? And so on. And then we might even use Vedic astrology to pick the right auspicious time or mohorta for that very first food. And that taking in of nourishment is seen as very precious. And it's not like we're denying the child nourishment. So the child is still getting breast milk or some other resource of nourishment along the way. So they're not being denied being nourished, but we're saying which nourishment is appropriate for the child at which time. And then even as adults, we do this as we move through the seasons of life and the seasons through the year, what form of nourishment is appropriate. So the Vedic tradition says all who seek knowledge and practice are welcome. And there's something for everyone, but that doesn't mean that anyone gets whatever they want whenever they want it. So if someone comes to yoga, the steward or the teacher, the mentor, the guru, the sangha can determine based on certain metrics, some of which might be very subtle, what is appropriate for this individual. So it's not about gatekeeping. It's about assessing what is the appropriate nourishment, because if we don't assess that and we force a practice or a teaching into a, into a condition of body mind that isn't matured in a particular way, isn't prepared, isn't available, then damage can be done. Just like if we eat the wrong food for the wrong constitution at the wrong time, we can do harm. So everyone has a place on this yogic path, but we need to look at what's appropriate at the right time for each individual. And we pray to Ganapati, to bring it back to Ganesha, to have the clarity to be able to determine that timing, to have the sweetness, to be able to lovingly say, this is what's appropriate now and this not yet, <laughs> or maybe not ever. Some practices are never for us. Um, so I think that's, you know, it's, it's thinking to me, it's thinking of the tradition as a divine mother. And the divine mother doesn't always give you what you want. She always gives you what you need. And she's entirely devoted to that in utter service. You know, the mother is in a hundred percent service when, when mother is going well, the archetypal mother, the divine mother is in total service to your maturation. Mm -hmm. 
And so in service, she will always give you what you need to mature and nothing too soon and nothing too late. It's up to us then to trust that process, which is easier said than done and to have patience and not, we can demand all we want and we can ask all we want and we can pray for what we want, but we also have to be receptive and reverent enough to accept what's given and have patience or acceptance of what isn't given or isn't given yet. A couple of reflections that come up for me around that is, well, firstly, in the role of the mother and the conversations, particularly that I have with our eldest child and, you know, trying to explain to him that I'm not here to directly make you happy or give you what you want. My role is to take care of you and to be responsible for giving you what is best for you and what you need. And you may not love that or, you know, want that at the time, but it's, it, that's actually my role is to, by caring for you, it's not saying yes to everything and it's upholding those boundaries. And as you say, yeah, respecting what a person needs rather than necessarily what they seemingly want. And it also reminds me yeah. of, um, I think, you know, obviously this is very uh, much a part of the culture in India, but at my school in India where I study Odissi dance, uh, my teacher has always said in terms of like readiness for choreography, uh, because a lot of foreigners do come to the school. And the mm -hmm. idea here is you're coming with this mentality, particularly from a, a dance background, that you can have whatever item or choreography that you want when you want it. And it's like, no, like, you have to wait and sometimes it's a lot longer than you want it to be and in some respects having you know been studying that art form for a number of years now now I can look back and see what an absolute gift that was the gift of time mm. the waiting mm. the patience that we've had to cultivate uh, in having that experience which is very different to that of the, of the Western mentality, let's say. And so uh, on that note, uh, in, in, your, in your experience, how can we uh, qualify or let's say be eligible to receive the deeper teachings? Uh, you know, how, how do we know when we're ready? What, what is the process there? Mm -hmm. So within the Vedic context, um, how we know when we're ready is <laughs> in relationship with teacher, mentor, guru, or within a sangha or all of that. And I'll preface this by saying we are working under the assumption that the teacher is dharmic and that the teacher is a good steward. So let's just establish that first of all. Mm. So with that established, then we have trust on board. We see the, um, the, the teacher, the mentor as the one that is protecting the tradition and also protecting the student because one of the things that yoga does is it's, it's, it, it renovates and we don't want to renovate and start deconstructing things before there is some inner stability. And we also can't start inserting things before there is an inner sort of suppleness and pliability and availability, whether it's principles and teachings or practices and so on. So we trust that and we trust the teacher. And then the teacher is determining for a community of students or for individual students when those students are ready and what the metrics are is going to somewhat depend on what it is they have to deliver. 
but I would say if I was, if I was going to say it broadly, as we're maturing in a practice or in teachings or, you know, on the spiritual journey, the movement is always towards a sattvic condition. It is the sattvic condition that makes us available. And so as we become more sattvika in, in, in condition, then the thoughts that are being produced in the mind, the, the, we can say the condition of mind is producing the thoughts, right? So a lot of people come into yoga or meditation and think I have to change my thoughts or I have to stop my thoughts. And then you at some point realize that it's impossible. <laughs> you can't control or change your thoughts, but what you can do is you can cultivate a certain condition and it's the condition in which the thoughts are being produced. And so one of the roles of the teacher is to observe the condition of the student or the group of students and then use that to determine what's appropriate. So let's shift to Ayurveda, for example. If you have someone with a lot of tamoguna, where they are very lethargic, very sleepy, very uninterested, very unmotivated, then the remedy is to take something rajasic, you know, some black pepper and ginger in the diet, some waking up early and looking at the sunlight, some warming practices, some vigor, some motivation, even scaring them a little bit, as one of my teachers would say, lighting a fire under their bum to just get them <laughs> going, bringing in the grudges. You can't take that person and start teaching the, the, the highest principle teachings of scripture and doing subtle inner work. It doesn't, it's not going to work. And in fact, it could be more destructive. Um, and so we're determining that's an Ayurveda example, but the teacher's role is to determine what's the condition. And then based on that, um, did, you know, choose the teachings and then keep moving forward. Like we're going down a river as we go. Um, and then we're selecting teachings or practices that will help the student to mature. So we're thinking, we're looking and saying, you know, I look at my students and how they are when they come and then determining this is what I see, say for the whole community, for the whole group, this is what's needed right now in order to sort of move people down the river gently <laughs> in the direction of maturation. So it's, it might sound like a dry word to suggest, but it sounds diagnostic in a sense. You know, you're, you're really assessing and then being receptive to, yeah, yeah where, where a and student it's is. Diag it is diagnostic, and it, but it's not dry because the diagnosis is, as I said, we're using certain metrics that are perhaps seeable, but we're also, I mean, at least I can speak for myself based on my background. Everyone's going to have, have a different background and they'll have different means of determining so there's also what is the teacher adhikar for? So the teacher, I didn't mention this, this as students, we have to be adhikar. We have to be eligible and available for, for, for teachings and practices. But the teacher also has a requirement to uphold adhikar. It means the teacher teaches what the teacher has, has the capacity to teach, the dharma to teach, the permission and blessing to teach. So, so for me, I'm going to teach whatever is in the realm 
you know, of my expertise, what my teachers and mentors have given me the blessing to teach. And I'm not going to cross that line. And then within that, I'm going to say, well, amongst all of those things, I'm observing the students, but I'm also, because I have Jyotish as part of my background, I'm also observing what's happening astrologically, or I'm observing what's happening seasonally to determine what's appropriate. And these things are fairly subtle. And again, everyone would have to determine different things. So let's say you're an Ayurvedic practitioner, you would look at individuals or you would look at your group of students, but you would also consider the season. And so you would think about it's the spring or it's the fall, what's appropriate to the season. And then you might look at your students and think about, well, based on who my students are, is it appropriate to give them practices? Is it appropriate to give them knowledge? Should that knowledge be fairly practical based on who these people are? Or should that knowledge be fairly subtle based on who they are? Are we working with the body, with the mind and so on? So you use the metrics that you have within the framework that you work and observe your students, listen to them. I think it's very important to be in dialogue with the people that we're working with so that we do really know you're not just guessing or using pure intuition. I'm in constant dialogue with my students, open Q and a sessions, one-on-one sessions, uh, our online sangha, reading what they're sharing. And that's that deep listening is key. And, you know, that can bring us back to Ganesha because Ganapati has these big ears. And those big ears are symbolic of the profound capacity that we all want to develop for deep listening. And that means listening to the cosmos, listening to each other, listening to our students, listening to our teachers, listening to scripture, you know, and, and listening to intuition as well. So we're using all of that. That beautifully reflects, I think, how it's always been of value to have let's say a smaller group or more intimate group relationship with a teacher or even one-to-one rather than this sort of en masse approach that we find ourselves in in the West, um, which inhibits in many ways the capacity for deeper, deeper listening and awareness, but also the capacity then to respond appropriately to, to each, each person. And yeah, what you've said is evidently the way that I think, within the group context, you have been able to so uh, wisely and intimately engage and serve your community, which brings me to on the subject of serving your community. I'd love to slightly pivot into the role of storytelling, which uh, you definitely uphold in everything that you that you share and present online, at least that I have seen and experienced. And perhaps this ties in with Mm, preparation for that sense of readiness and eligibility for the teaching. So would you like to share on the value of storytelling and wherever that might take you? Yes, actually, I'd love to pick up the thread of something that you just said, which I think connects to the, the principle of storytelling as the teaching methodology really profoundly. Because you said, you know, oh, we're teaching large groups. Teaching large groups has also been done, you know, within the Vedic context for a long time as well. So it's not necessarily that, you know, smaller is better and larger is not. I think that's up to what the subject matter is and who the teacher is. Certain teachers have the a, a, a dharma and a karma for teaching very large groups. And other teachers or practitioners have the dharma for, 
for working with small numbers or one-on-one. And that just has to do with where you are, where you're really in order with yourself. And then, you know, I'm an example of someone that has the, the dharma to do both. And there I am determining as others have to do, which subject matters, practices, and teachings are appropriate and deliverable in a large group context, and which is more appropriate and deliverable in a small group context. And there's some crossover, but there's also a lot of difference there. So now we can talk about storytelling, kind of tie it all up beautifully, I think, is that storytelling is something that can happen in a very large group context. And the magic of storytelling is that each individual will receive exactly what they need from the story. So it's working, you know, with a sangha, with a community, with a large group, but in this fine, directed, individualized way because of the magic of stories. And storytelling is one of the primary mechanisms for making us adhikar, for making us eligible. So when we don't have sattvaguna as the primary condition, when we are lost in tamoguna, meaning we're sort of stuck in our own ignorance, our own default patterns that are clouding our clarity, when we're lethargic and avoidant and resistant, then stories can pull us out of that. And when we are stuck in Rajoguna, when we're being constantly compelled by our likes and dislikes, so much to the point that we are causing harm to ourselves and others because getting what I want matters more. You know, we, we cross uh, Dharma when we're so caught in, you know, that like and dislike mode. For example, you know, well, I, I don't, it, it's winter in, um, and I have kaffa, but I want ice cream before bed. So I'm going to have it. So that in, intense desire will cause us to make choices that are not appropriate. And there as well, stories are the remedy. So the tradition itself says when someone does not have a condition of mind that is a dikar that makes them available to do their dharma in their life or to receive certain teachings and practices, a primary remedy is listening to stories. And the reason is because you want to be able to bring your heart and your emotions with you along the ride for practices and teachings. Let's say you have someone that that's thinking, well, I want to learn, I want to read the Upanishads. Okay. Well, what's the condition of the mind? We need to have a state of mind where the emotions are on board, where the heart's on board, where there's a receptivity and where there is a dharmic lifestyle, where the person is stable in their lives, stable in their minds, stable and sweet. These are two principles of Ganapati. And storytelling is the means to that. Why is that? Let's say you could choose to sit in a history class and get all the names and dates and the timelines and all of the information. 
how much of it would stick with you. In fact, I think any listener could look back and think about anything that they, and anything informational that they've gotten in their lives, go back and try to remember, you know, algebra, the history details that you've learned versus can you remember the stories that you've listened to and not read, but particularly listened to stories that your parents told you about their parents or their childhood stories that you listened to, um, or even watched, you know, movies and shows that you've watched and music that you've listened to. All of that is very alive because it speaks to the manas. It speaks to the emotional aspect of the mind and it speaks to the heart. And the stories in the Vedic tradition are so exquisite because they not only speak to the heart and the emotions, but the stories touch on every possible manifest uh, experience that you could ever imagine. So there's a there's an expression about the Mahabharata, which is of course a very well known, huge epic you know story, the biggest epic poem that exists, you know, in, in humanity across cultures. And this quote about the Mahabharata says, um, anything that's not in the Mahabharata doesn't also exist anywhere. If it doesn't exist anywhere, it's not in the Mahabharata. And if it exists anywhere, it is also in the Mahabharata. It is all encompassing. So we listen to stories and they invoke emotion. They connect to our memory. They cover the full spectrum of life. And the stories allow us to, without our even realizing it, to learn major life lessons. And that prepares us to live life in a particular way, to view life in a particular way which over time then makes us available to um, teachings and practices. There's a teacher who says, you know, if you, you listen to the Mahabharata or the Ramayana and you can sort of experience all of the pain, the loss, the grief, the trauma, the bliss, the elation, the exaggeration without, you know, getting a scratch on your body or losing a hair on your head, <laughs> you get to witness all of it and learn the lessons that the characters learn and connect to those lessons without actually having to go through it yourself. And it becomes very resonant and meaningful for the things that you go through in your life because nothing is outside of it. And so you learn in such a delicious, delicious way. I mean, you have children, you probably read books to them. And it, for me as a mother, it's, it's our favorite time of day every day is story time with mama. That's beautiful. And that, that definitely leads me into uh, asking you about, and again, this is probably another selfish in interest, but uh, given that, you know, that you and I are both mothers with young children, I'd love to know how this all ties into the role of the householder and, and, and therefore thereby living yoga and living these traditions, which I think is a natural um, the understanding of that and the embodiment of that is a natural evolution of the maturation of the practitioner uh, that just comes purely with time on some level. But yeah, I'd love just to know your insight and thoughts on that role. And, and uh, you know, I would guess that almost everyone, if not everyone listening to this episode is a householder and 
yeah, what, what, what are your thoughts on weaving all of this into to daily life, into the struggles, the responsibilities and, and really getting that, that sense, that essence that we are really truly living, living this rather than it being a sort of a separate thing? Yes. So this is, again, brings us to why we want to have our practices and teachings and really the stories that we listen to. We, we want everything that we're doing in the name of, you know, yoga for to, to be very meaningful and personal. We want it to have an impact. We're not just gathering information. So if as a student of yoga and yogic teachings and practices, you are accessing the right teachings and stories and practices for you at the right time, and letting, you know, having your heart open and be sensitive to letting what you're bringing in be meaningful and personal, then you will undergo transformation. You will change and you will integrate what you're receiving. This is another reason to be a decar to go back to that is you want to be able to integrate anything that comes in. You're not just like eating a million pieces of information and practices and integrating none of it. A little bit that goes a long way, but is integrated is so powerful. And then you undergo transformation, which has a ripple effect in your relationships in particular. And being a householder is really being in the world of relationships with responsibilities. So you have responsibilities to your life partner or your children or your plants or your home, anything that you have stewardship over and relationship with you're responsible for. And if you can approach those relationships and those responsibilities with that sattvic condition, with your heart open and letting yourself be meaningfully touched by yogic teachings and practices, then the natural result is that your life is yogic. Your responsibilities become yogic responsibilities, how you parent it's not about being a perfect parent or a perfect life partner, but how you relate more and more will be yogic. And what do I mean by yogic? I mean, attuned to what is appropriate moment to moment, which is why, you know, just as there's no rule book for yoga, you know, here's, here's the, here's the list do this. And then you're a quote unquote yogi. It's the same as you know, with parenting and it's the same with life. There is not a rule book because it's alive and because we each have different momentum of karma. We each have different dharma, different purpose, different modes of being. There's no one rule book or list for us all to follow. And so what, what yogic transformation does and becoming say more sattvic, it allows us to have an inner harmony where you have slowed down your reaction time. So think about it. Anytime you regret something you've said or done as a householder, it is always because you were in reaction mode and not responsive mode. And I think if I could narrow it, being a yogic person in the householder realm down, I would say it is all about slowing down your reaction time and being able to deliberately walk around a situation so that you can respond rather than react. 
And that means that you respond maybe differently day to day because all the little details have recalibrated and are different. Um, and what my guru would say is in the beginning, you have to be very deliberate. You really have to intentionally slow your reaction time down and be extremely deliberate in choosing wisely moment to moment what you're doing, how you're acting, how you're interacting, how you're relating. But over time, as you mature in your spiritual journey and as a householder, which are not you know, dissimilar, they're not really two different things. Your life as a householder is part of your spiritual journey of life. Over time, what was deliberate becomes spontaneous. But that's with patience and time and continually deepening. May I ask you to expand a little bit? And so let's take this a bit further on your personal experience as a, as a mother. So in that particular role mm -hmm. as a mother, because mothers do face a lot of challenges and, and it's such a big life transition. Uh, and earlier in our conversation, you really spoke uh, so eloquently to the essence and the role of the divine mother. And I think that, yeah, I think it would just be perhaps reassuring in some ways to shed some light on that role and the value of the role of the mother as it pertains particularly through the Vedic tradition. Sure. Um, maybe an example is helpful. This is where storytelling comes in because we could talk intellectually about all of this, but when we have a story on board, it makes all the difference in the world, right? So I have two children. They were sort of homeschooled, unschooled for, for quite a few years, but now our older child is in school, a school, school-ish, <laughs> alternative school. And our younger child did school for half the year last year, and he was all set to begin this year. It was going to be the first time ever that my husband, Michael, and I were going to have two children in school at the same time for hours a day, five days a week. And we had somewhat planned our lives around that. Oh, we can work at the same time. You know, we can overlap our schedules. We can work when we're working and be with the children when we're with the children. That was the plan. And the morning of our younger child's first day of school, all was going well until it was time to get into the car. And he had a complete meltdown and was very clear. I don't want to go. He was able to articulate his reason. And so this is part of, this is where the question of, okay, so now we're in mama mode and I have my own desire. My desire was, no, I want you to go to school. It's good for you. This was the plan. They're expecting you. I've centered, I've planned a life around this. That's the desire. So witnessing that and witnessing my own fears and reactions. Okay. What does this mean? If he doesn't go, what did my mother-in-law think? What is, you know, what does the school think? What does it mean, you know, for our work, et cetera, that you witness that's yogic. You witness the reaction. You don't push it away, but you also don't get lost in it. You witness it and acknowledge it lovingly. Then there's witnessing and acknowledging the child lovingly. And I think that rests on being curious. So I sat with him and acknowledged his feelings. Okay, you clearly, you're sad, you're scared, you don't want to go, you're crying. Do you know why you feel this way? And asking him to witness himself because that requires him to sort of pause 
and witness his own reaction. And he was able to articulate that's not always the case for, for children. Um, but he happened to be able to articulate in the moment anyway, what he was perceiving was the reason. And then I had to very quickly, because we were supposed to get in the car, make a determination. So walk around the situation and slow down your reaction time. But also, as you know, as a mother, it's like, sometimes we just have to make a determination. So I determined, well, we're going to get in the car anyway. And I had to sit with, who is this child? This child is a child that reverse psychology works beautifully on him. He, if he has a sense, if he can smell that you want him to do something, there's no way. And so I, knowing that because I've witnessed this child, I could say, well, we have to get in the car because we have to take brother to school anyway. And also I have your friend's jacket. So we have to go to your school so I can give your friend's mama the jacket. So I had these other reasons and we're going to go for Ahimsa first and Satya second. What was the gentlest approach here? Not what's the most, the most honest approach would be, well, I'm freaked out about this and we're going to try and I'm going to get you as close to that school as possible and just see if you change your mind. That was what was really going on, but it wasn't his, it wasn't necessary for him to know that. And it was non-helpful for him to know that. So we got in the car, we went. I, and I did sort of every gentle possible thing that I could do. I talked to the teacher. I talked to his previous year's teachers. They offered to come and talk to him, which they did. And he was hiding in the back of the car at his brother's feet, you know. So we didn't go. And we continued the discussion. We stayed open and curious. And we listed things out. Here's your options. And we stayed open. Now, there are times when the parent is the parent. And you're saying, we have somewhere to be. I know you don't want to put your shoes on or get in the car, but you're getting in the car. Don't put your shoes on. Fine. I'm picking up your shoes and I'm picking up your body and I'm putting you in, you in the car. There are times when that is what's appropriate. And there are other times when we can make the determination to slow down and listen to the child and go with the child's intuition. And that also is going to depend on your life situation. If Michael and I have jobs or we have to go to work and there's no one home with the child, we would have to do something different. So this is what I mean by walk around the situation because no two situations are the same. There's no rule book. We had to look at this child who is very intuitive and we had to look at our home life situation, which does allow the space to have a child at home. And we had to let go of all the outer pressure, the inner pressure, the judgment and the desire. And in the moment make a determination that is appropriate. And so right now that child is doing homeschool, unschool. We're being pretty boring. We're not entertaining him. He's on his own a lot of the time. He's taught himself to read. And, <laughs> you know, and it's actually going very well. And now I've reached the point where I'm utterly unattached. I'm very happy to have him here doing what he's doing. And I'm happy if he decides he wants to go to school. And last week he did a little afternoon at his school. He felt open to it. His teacher invited him and he gave a thumbs up. And so we went. So this is one example of witnessing our reactions, making a determination in the moment, and then working with that moment to moment as lovingly as we can. Now, sometimes being loving means that we say, this is the rule. This is the boundary. And, you know, I can give you a million other examples of that as well. Um, and we have to determine moment to moment, what's the right thing. 
And as you said, um, maybe it was before we were recording, but you know, with my older child, there's many times when I have to say to him, I'm sorry that you don't like the decision that I'm making and that you think I'm mean, I'm mean mommy. He'll call me evil, you know? And then I say, that's okay. You can have that feeling right now, but that's the rule. And I'm, and and that's what it is. That's what's appropriate. You Mm -hmm. don't have to like it, but my job is not to satisfy all of your desires. My job is to choose what's appropriate for you. And sometimes what's appropriate is what the child likes. And sometimes what's appropriate is what the child doesn't like. And that's a lesson for each of us as well in life. As a yogic person, you have to acknowledge we have likes and dislikes. And sometimes what you like is also what's dharma. But sometimes what you like is not. And sometimes what you don't like is appropriate. And that's you know, how it is. And sometimes what, you know, so we all have to play with that as parents, witness that in our children and as yogic people ourselves, there's likes and dislikes, there's raga dvesha, and then there's what is appropriate moment to moment and being able to witness both and hold both with a level of maturity and love is what it is, I think, to be a, a yogic householder. And something I appreciate that you mentioned that pertains to everybody listening, if even if you're not a parent, and that is, uh, you, you said it just very briefly, but it is the outer pressure and your example, the story you've shared has really highlighted how you have not to succumb or made a decision based on some perceived outer pressure of what the school of thought you should do or, your, you know, your mother-in-law or what society would think. And it's so easy in our world today to succumb to that outer pressure and yes. to be concerned about what other people think instead of having enough discernment and, and that relationship to that inner quietude that offers us the wisdom that, yeah. you know, takes us into the answer or the decision that we need to make and you know on the note of children too you know having those boundaries I think you know even I think even science is showing this now that children actually thrive more based on the boundaries not being super strict and necessarily Mm -hmm. authoritarian but actually children learn to have their own boundaries through that being uh you know lived and 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 displayed around them as they as they grow up and it can be very valuable to them and you know doing a lot of Ayurveda for you and your listeners, I think an Ayurvedic lifestyle, which, you know, we talked about stories, but the, the others, the other recommendation that I would make for those that are thinking, well, how do I become a Dikar? How do I become, you know, eligible for teachings and ask Ganesha to open the doorway? One answer is stories. And the other answer is an Ayurvedic lifestyle. And one of the things that an Ayurvedic lifestyle does is it creates a structure, it creates boundaries. And if you're raising your children with those boundaries, you know, in our family, our children know every day, you know, it's different at school, but even at school, they, you know, our child has the same timeline. We eat lunch every day at around 1230 consistently, always 100% of the time. And if they get invited to do something with friends, they know, well, we'll get there after lunch. And 
the same with their bedtime. And they love the structure, actually. They never fight it because it's so familiar. They actually think it's really strange that other families don't eat lunch, you know, every day in the middle of the day together and that they don't have a bedtime. And they ask for their bedtime if mama's distracted mm-hmm. and they'll say, Mama, you know, it's time. We want our stories and we want bed. So that structure, whether it's in the form of certain rules and boundaries or even the lifestyle itself. It's incredibly powerful for children and adults to make life a ritual and to make life feel stable. And in the stability that allows for sweetness versus a life of chaos, which is a life of stress. And I think it brings us full circle to Ganapati because Ganesha is earth. He's stability. He's Tira. That is the principle of Ganapati but he's also sukha. He's always eating those round sweets. He has the sumuk, the sweet face, because where there is stability, there's sweetness. And I think that's the job of a householder parent, you know, yogic householder parent is to provide that stability for the family, which allows for the sweetness, which is what we want for our children and in our own lives as well. Mm-hmm. As I say, the structure creates the boundaries for you to experience freedom rather than the chaos, as you suggested. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to close our conversation today. Um, Not always, but quite often I do ask those that come on the podcast for, you know, one or two book recommendations. And in our dialogue before this chat today, you indicated that you generally speaking don't recommend books and I found this really fascinating um and you know you said that it was you know suggested to be uh only when it's a supplement to listening and I think this ties in with the idea of shruti and and even much of what you said before um about readiness and listening and storytelling so please enlighten us with your thoughts around this sure yes and I I may recommend a book in spite of it um great you know Um, yes, everything that I share came not from books. Let me say that for the most part, it came from listening, sitting with my teachers, chest to chest, as they say, and listening. And and this whole, you said the word Shruti, this whole tradition depends on deep listening and on listening to teachings because Akasha space is the most expansive element and it connects to the ear. We are supposed to hear the teachings and the scriptures themselves are considered forms of the feminine divine. So like the Bhagavad Gita, Gita means song and it's a feminine word. You are meant to listen like you listen to music. It's meant to be heard and it's a form of the feminine divine. Each scripture is a goddess. And if you think about, you know, to go back to the mother, the mother role, well, what does the mother do? The mother sings to the child. The mother speaks to the child. The mother tells the child things. The mother is delivering guidance really through speech and through song and through storytelling and through explaining. And what do you do as a mother? You know, do you, do you write stories down for your children to read? Do you write down, you know, the rules or do you convey it through communicating and they listen to you? And this is how we want to take in knowledge is we want to listen to it. So a book is a beautiful supplement. It's something that you can hold on to, you can read, you can underline things, you know, but only as a supplement. So I think that the the best 
book is the book that your teacher has recommended for you because knowledge from the viewpoint of this tradition is an upaya. It's a remedy. So asking for a book recommendation is sort of like asking to say, well, what's the, what are the three herbs that everyone should take? Or what is the one food that everyone should eat? How could I possibly say I would need to, to know what, what is the listener desiring? Where are they at? What is their circumstance? And then let the knowledge be a remedy. And if it's written read knowledge only as a supplement. Having said that, I think if people are interested in stories as a remedy, I would say get a translation of the Ramayana because they say that if you read the Ramayana even once or listen to the Ramayana even once in your life, it makes a huge impact that has a ripple effect karmically and uh, communally and so on. And in our household, we read it several times a year <laughs> minimum and so I would get a good translation of the Ramayana, which has so much meaning and depth within it. And it has a subtle effect when you read those stories, when you read the parts about Hanuman, they give you power. And when they, you read the parts about Sita, they open your heart and so on. And I think Ramesh Menon has a wonderful translation that's very readable of the Ramayana. Um, so I would, I would start with that. And the other recommendation was I was going to say, or a book on Ayurveda that guides you in the principles of Ayurveda. These are the two things that really make you adhikar. And when it comes to scripture, find a teacher and then teach the scriptural teachings that that teacher that you resonate with is giving you. And then if they offer a book suggestion, then let that be a supplement. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. And that makes so much sense. It's kind of like one of those things where you think, Yes. Why didn't I think of it like that? You know, it's just, it's <laughs> to me, I, and I don't mean to sound so analytical, but it's like, it actually sounds very logical. Um, but mm -hmm. again, you know, and, and I think it's that innate sense that so many of us are hungry for knowledge. So it's like books, 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 where can I get it? Um, and perhaps because especially in the Western world, we're very um, devoid of that intimacy with a teacher and, and having yes. that relationship. And so it's that, that desire to seek out something some guidance from somewhere but i really appreciate that um kaya where um is the best place to send the listeners to connect with you and look at studying with you your website social media website is yoga with kaya k-a-y-a all spelled out and that's the best place to find whatever things are happening with me um in the moment and plenty of <laughs> teachings happening that they can find there and then um, they can find me on Instagram. It's just my name at Kaya Mindlin. And there we do a lot of, um, myth busting yoga land, myth busting and, <laughs> um, explaining of teachings and principles. And I keep it very much alive in the moment. There's no, there's no plan or strategy or social media manager. It's really just what's coming up for me as I'm living my life and witnessing my children, my self and my students and letting things kind of bubble up from within. Mm, I do absolutely love everything you share on Instagram. It's very, very enriching um, with the, the yoga landscape of, of today. It's, it's, yeah, it's, mm. I'm so grateful for your knowledge. And, and uh, is it correct that uh, the regular ongoing offerings that you have are the Supreme Release Yoga? Is that a subscription? And then also the Nectar of Time? Yes, these are, this is Supreme Release Yoga is a form of yoga that I 
teach and share. It works very gently and um, therapeutically with the spine. And we work in the subtle realms and the physical. And actually, sometimes we even convey story uh, through the body. And then that's a membership. People can try it for a month and stay as long as they like. And then the Nectar of Time is also a membership. Try it for a month and stay as long as you like. And in the Nectar of Time, we do a monthly um, story time. Sometimes there's several stories that are based on the Vedic calendar. And I also share Vedic astrology insight and strategy each month based on what's happening in the cosmos and teachings that are connected. So for example, when the Ganapati festival comes, we have Ganesha stories and we have a recipe for Ganesha. There's some Ayurvedic recipes and lifestyle all connected to the Vedic calendar. And then, you know, as I said, astrology for the time to guide people in their lives and stories, stories, stories. It's lots of storytelling where I share not just the stories, but the meaning that's embedded in the stories, which is, you know, one of my favorite things to do. Mm, that sounds incredible and very much emphasizes what we mentioned earlier about feeling like you're really living, uh, weaving the tradition into daily life rather than it being something completely separate in terms of a practice. Yes. Um, yes. yes. Okay. Thank you, Kaya. I um. I've been so enriched by this conversation. I feel like I could really be greedy and chat with you all day, but I deeply appreciate <laughs> all of your wealth of wisdom and, and knowledge. Is there anything you would like to share before we, we close? Anything else? No, this was just lovely. And I'm so happy to spend the hour with you and with your listeners too. So thank you. I appreciate the invitation so much. If this episode was of value to you and your life, please subscribe. And if you can think of someone who would benefit from this dialogue, please do them a favor and send it their way. If you feel called, hop on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. This is the best way to get these conversations into the ears and hearts of our wider community, to those who need it most. You can find me at amyelandry.com or over on Instagram at amyelandry. May we all move a little closer to a life living in alignment.